0: Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast of the Irish Examiner. Now, events in recent years, I suppose notably but not exclusively the onset of Brexit, have brought to the fore the prospect of a united Ireland. There's been discussion and debates, roadshows and books. Much of this has been based on the premise that reunification of the island is inevitable, even if the timeline of such a development is as yet unwritten. A lot of the discussion has been around the pace at which things should move towards this outcome. In that respect, I suppose you could say that an awful lot of the talk has been about how, as in how will this be done. Now, a book has been published by a respected writer and journalist, Malachi O'Doherty, which asks not how, but why. Can Ireland be one is an engaging examination of all the factors that should be included in any analysis of whether there should be one jurisdiction on this island. To that extent, Malachi O'Doherty, I think, is more concerned with people than a piece of land when it comes to looking into the future. There's a lot more than that between the covers here, ranging across history, culture and religion, as he attempts to answer the question posed by the book's title. And I think it's fair to say that he also brings a lot of his personal history into the account, which I suppose humanises or personalises it all with something that's, I would think anyway, a useful device when dealing with what is a heavy topic. Malachy O'Darty, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Mick. To start at the beginning, I suppose, Malachy, the obvious question, why did you write this book that asks
1: why should we all on this island be as one? I suppose it's a question that's been bothering me for a few years, most especially since Brexit. I mean, I grew up in Northern Ireland. I lived through most of the troubles in the north. Um, my main considerations when I thought about a united Ireland at that time would have been that it's not likely to happen there isn't in any sense a, you know a really major demand for it that if it was to happen it was going to happen in confrontation with unionists and therefore with the potential to create a civil war on the island and with a sense that life was good enough you know things were changing in the north for the catholics to use that word but in meaning essentially the irish identifying people in northern ireland of whom i am certainly one when I was a child, when I was young, growing up, I was aware of discrimination, of the danger of being discriminated against unemployment. I was aware of uh, prevailing culture within Northern Ireland, which essentially regarded us as, as not quite full citizens within the, within the territory. You would have heard Ian Paisley thundering about Protestant Ulster and the need to defend Protestant Ulster. Well, Protestant Ulster has gone. you know the the idea that the the territory can be defined as Protestant is now an obsolete idea it has no It has no traction, and also, I suppose the feeling that other people were asserting this cause much more vehemently and violently than it than it needed to be asserted, and that I had some responsibility to speak to that as well and to say no, not in my name which is what I would have done through, through much of my writing and journalism up to that point. You come to a stage where the troubles are more or less over. Uh, you have stability in Northern Ireland. You have a political agreement between the two big political forces of nationalism and unionism. And you have a, a, a process that can lead to a united Ireland should a majority of people want it. All of that entailed in the Good Friday Agreement. Then along comes Brexit, and Brexit does a couple of things. The unionist support for Brexit struck me as a breach of faith with the the rest of the people in in Northern Ireland, the, the the nationalists, if you like, the Catholics. It was a breach of faith in the sense that Northern Ireland Catholics were using that word, but call them that since actually they're all baptised Catholics and went to Catholic school, so so it's not that not that wrong. But Northern Ireland Catholics had a sense, in a sense, resigned themselves to letting Northern Ireland work even though it wasn't their first preference, right? And that was what the Good Friday Agreement meant for that community. Unionism pushing for Brexit seemed not to be repaying in kind, seemed to be saying, look, we're going for what we want, regardless of what what our neighbours want, this other community that we share this space with, regardless of what they they want, we're going for Brexit. That felt to me like a breach of faith. That felt to me like... uh, almost like the ending of an unspoken deal, right? The other thing that they they, they contained within the Brexit thing was a sense that Britain had somehow lost its mind, you know, that British nationalism was prevailing, that a response to that from Ireland was not an Irish nationalism pitted against a British nationalism. It was an Irish internationalism wanting to be part of a larger union against a retracting Britain and then the other side of it again was the sense that as things progressed through uh, the, the referendum, uh, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, now Liz Truss, that the quality of government available through uh, the UK is a diminished quality of government. So for all these reasons, this question plays on my mind. Do you want a united Ireland, Malachi? I mean, it is. it does solve a few problems. It gets you back in the European Union. It releases you from some kind of madness that has overtaken Britain. But uh, we worry about what the Unionists would respond, but in a sense they broke the deal already. So, I mean, why not break it on our side, this, this kind of unspoken deal of not disrupting? And the conclusion I came to for my own sake was, I'm open to this, but I'll decide on the terms. I will not make the mistake that a lot of people made at the time of the Brexit vote of vote, voting ideologically in terms of an identity conviction. Uh, I just look at those terms and say, is my pension going to be better? Uh, am I, you know, will I be in a more thriving economy? Uh, will I be in a more culturally mature space? You know, And I started asking the question more in terms of what I want rather than uh, what might be best for my unionist neighbours. You know, who had kind of forgotten what I wanted when they were going for Brexit.
0: Yeah, and one, just a quick thing that arises out of that element of it, Maliki, when you say those questions you'll ask yourself, in that, does it feature at all? As in, as you say, your unionist friends did their own thing, but will it feature within your own questioning as to how exactly will some of those unionist friends take it if there is a united Ireland?
1: Well, absolutely, and, and that was part of my thinking, and that question features strongly in the book. I think one of the big reasons, one of the big problems about the concept of a uniting Ireland is that essentially it fails to recognise that there is a fundamental problem of division in Northern Ireland. The Republican analysis, if you like, is that the division in Northern Ireland stems from partition. Sort out partition and the Protestants, the Unionists, will fall in line. They'll re- wake up one day, they'll realise they're Irish and the problem solved. The problem is caused by partition. That's the analysis. That analysis is wrong. The division will still be there in a united Ireland, right? And what are you going to do with that? Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take the responsibility from Britain to handle that division and you're going to hand it to Dublin. And you have to ask Dublin, does Dublin want that? Do you want to be dealing with riots uh, around orange parades uh, every July? Do you want to send the Garda Sheikana into Belfast, you know, and into riot areas and into loyalist areas to deal with disruption that might arise? Are the unionists, are the Protestants, let's call them Protestants, are they going to uh, reconcile themselves to a united Ireland? One suggestion is that they might, because Protestants in the past did. The Protestants in the South, you know, the sense of the Anglo-Irish in the South, more or less came to terms with it. Now they didn't like it at first. They had a lot of their property destroyed and burnt. But in all in all, they came round to thinking we are Irish people. And if you speak to Protestants now uh, in the, in the, living in Dublin and in the Irish public, they are Irish. They don't you don't hear this uh, major demand for the restoration of the United Kingdom with uh, with the 26 counties included. You hear Protestant Irish people contentedly Protestant. And therefore, you might suppose that Protestants in Ballymena and in Rathcool. Uh, you know, in uh, Ballina Allard will make that similar adaptation once they find themselves in United Ireland. But there's a difference, Mick. The difference is territory. The difference is that you can, right now, you can uh, uh, paint parts of Northern Ireland orange and parts of Northern Ireland green, and there's a very clear swathe of territory, from Coleraine on the Ban, uh, you know, down through Antrim and parts of County Down and under Loch A, you know, which is Protestant territory. And you will know it as Protestant territory when you go into it because of the murals on the wall, because of the curbstones red, white and blue, because of the Union flags flying over the, the council buildings and, uh, and because of the council representation. Those councils in those areas are Unionist representing Protestant people. So that will be a clearly definable Protestant enclave inside the New Ireland. And that is not something, it'll be like our Donetsk, You know, it'll be like something that has not happened uh, in the 26-county Republic of Ireland, you know, which assimilated uh, Protestants. The Protestants in in those territories will have political representation. Uh, They will have their own flags and symbols. They will have their orange parades. And they will be in a position to make demands on the new state, demands for recognition as an ethnic minority, demands for recognition, demands to refuse the anthem, demands to refuse the Irish language. So that anyone driving through this New Ireland, say from Donegal down to Dundalk, uh, you know, in in 20 or or 10 years' time, would know that they were passing through a Protestant, British-identifying territory. They would know it by the street signs, it would not be bilingual. They would know it by the flags on the buildings. They would know it by... uh, They would know it probably by disruption, you know? And they would know it by the fact that um, uh, that territory would have... Thousands. I mean, the current estimate of the membership of the Ulster Defence Association, an illegal armed paramilitary organisation, the current estimate of membership is 6,000, right? So those people would be able to define the boundaries of their own enclave. They would be able to intimidate Catholics from living in that enclave. They would be able to invite Protestants from outside the enclave to come in, you know, I mean, these, this is a nightmare scenario, essentially, and it may not ever come to that stage. But think of uh, what Michael Collins did in, tw- in 1919 and what the provisional IRA did in 1970. They effectively uh, invalidated and neutralised the police force by killing small numbers of police officers. You kill a few police officers, others back off, they, they resign, they want transferred somewhere else, they want away from it all. In the north you got the army in in the south in one thousand nine hundred and nineteen you got the 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 army and and the black and tans because it 's very easy actually to pull the rug out from under a police force. so what you would have would be um, uh, potentially uh, attacks on the Irish police force within the enclave, a demand for local policing by local people you know essentially you know there, there wouldn 't be a demand that we get back into the union with with Great Britain because that would be impossible but there would be a very hard rock that would be hard to swallow for the Irish state and it would be uh, a, a, a determined orange Protestant uh, British identifying enclave within the island of Ireland.
0: Yeah, and, that is, I suppose, and that's suppose—that's an issue that, as I said, there's a lot of discussion going on <laughs> at the moment, but that element of unionism certainly not no interest in discussion, understandably from their point of view, but until such time as that comes about, that kind of scenario... Could be very real. Another element you touch on, Maliki very well in the book, is attitudes in the south to people from the north, and that's including both as as, as we're, uh, for simplifications purposes. You say we deal with Catholics and Protestants. Um, that's something I got into a little trouble over <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> last la- last Christmas. I just briefly tell you, Joe Brawley, Joe he, on, on TV, he mm. mentioned something about when he first came down south he sensed that there was an orthodoxy here, that the attitude to Catholics from the North was that, uh, sure, why did you bother getting your civil rights? Everything would have been grand if you just stayed the way you were and we wouldn't have all this trouble. Now, I reacted to that on Twitter and I got hammered for it. And a lot of people came out who, understandably, while not necessarily agreeing with Joe, and he backpedaled somewhat later, but they did make the point that an awful lot of people from the North, particularly Catholics, who came down here, had a feeling of hostility to a greater or lesser extent. Um, What's your opinion on that, as in how it was during the Troubles and particularly how you would perceive
1: it to still be there? I think one of the... I mean, I spoke to some people uh, for the book, like uh, Davy Adams. Davy Adams was a member of the UDA. He was a loyalist paramilitary. He was a founder member of the Ulster Democratic Party. Uh, He took part in the negotiations for the Good Friday Agreement. Um he did some journalism. He was uh, had a column with the Irish Times. And then the charity Goal invited him to come down to Dunleary and to work in Dunleary at their headquarters uh, on public relations for for the charity Goal. And That was pretty interesting, actually. That, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating story. Davy's yeah. yeah, a fascinating guy. And uh, and Divi, Divi says himself, look, I was a loyalist paramilitary. If people really didn't want to know me, or if people really thought I shouldn't be there, that wouldn't surprise me. I could I could live with that, because people would be entitled to respond to me in much the way that, for instance, uh, uh, an Irish Republican uh, going to work in a Protestant area in Belfast might expect a certain degree of, of animosity and wariness, right? But Davy was re- very well received. I mean, there were people, you know, who were slow to befriend him. There were people who taunted him. And there were people outside the, the building who who threatened him, who behaved in a threatening manner towards him. And, and the police had to be called in relation to that. But he formed incredibly good relations in Dublin. And he tells this hilarious story about this other guy that he worked with in, on Goal, you know, where they would go out for a smoke together and talk. And uh, one of them was uh, saying to him, you know, the mother, the mother was reading about you in the paper, you know, and she, you know, she's amazed that you're going out to all these places. And she just wants to know when you're next going abroad to one of these third world countries so she can light a candle for you, you know. <laughs> and the mother never met him, but the mother lit a candle for him every time he went out, you know. So so Davey really, really, uh, you know, fitted in well and was well loved. I wonder to some extent, and Paul Burgess, the writer that I interviewed for the book, makes a similar point. I wonder if, you know, a Catholic nationalist from Northern Ireland might not have it a wee bit more difficult. You know, there might, you know, in the South be something a wee bit slightly exotic uh, about a unionist or a loyalist. I remember one time seeing the time when Rhonda Paisley and her father Ian Paisley featured on RTE for a while and they were kind of fated as stars and, you know, and, and, and treated very warmly. And um, uh, Paul Burgess made that point Um Sam Magotry made that point, you know, when he wrote a book in the 1980s about journeying in the free state, as he called it, and he spoke to Catholic families from the North who had settled in Cork to get away from the Troubles, but were, you know, were kind of being held responsible for the Troubles, and any time there was an atrocity in the North, you know, people around them would be wary of them, or wouldn't speak to them, or would give off to them about it. So... So I don't know, these are things that you that you only gauge by talking to people and by, you know, sucking your finger and holding it up to the wind and trying to feel what the mood is. But, um, you know, I the, the difficulty of fitting the two communities together isn't just about how the South will absorb the Protestants of the North. It might well be how the South absorbs the Catholics of the North. Isn't it very interesting, for instance, that Sinn Féin organising in the Republic in the Dáil, you know, uh, doesn't doesn't bring Northerners down, you know. Mary Lou will come yeah. to Belfast and she'll stand with the you know the group of MLAs, you know, to represent Sinn Féin in the media here, you know. But but you know why aren't why isn't the Sinn Féin talent from the north like uh, like Conor Murphy and others being brought down to Dublin and and uh, inducted into political life there, you know, where their talents would enable them to make a major cont- contribution. There must be some kind of calculation even in the minds of Sinn Féin. That Catholics from the North might be a bit uh, difficult for people to get on with.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, actually. It's a, <laughs> it's a thing I hadn't noticed as much, but uh, mm. I, it, there could definitely be something in that.
1: To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe.
0: No, you also delve into history, Maliki, and what I find very interesting, and I think an area that I think is not covered enough, is you go prior to 1916, this notion that has taken flight to some extent, particularly in recent decades, that the history in terms of, of moving towards United Ireland began In 1916, but you go back a lot further and point out, you know, for example, a lot of Irish people involved in colonial wars on behalf of the British. And you also reference um, Daniel O'Connell a fair bit, somebody else whom I'd suggest is very much ignored in a lot of discourse around uh, history and where we're moving towards as well.
1: Well, there you have that amazing statue in O'Connell Street, the main thoroughfare of Dublin, named after one of the greatest Irishmen that ever lived, you know, who had a huge uh, political uh, impact uh, in his lifetime. And and yet we now treat it as if the cause of Irish unity started uh, with, with the Easter Rising, you know. And, uh, and the... O'Connell is fascinating on a number of levels. O'Connell, for one thing, he's personally fascinating. The eloquence of the man, you know, when he, those speeches that, he, that, that I quote from, you know. But also his, his political position was not the, the purest uh, uh, Irish detachment from Britain, you know. He definitely wanted to repeal the Union. He achieved Catholic emancipation. But when he addressed this crowd at Mullamast, you know, he 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 was scathing about Wellington because he said, you know, Wellington would have been nowhere at Waterloo but for the Irish. He c- recited that poem of the Shan Van Vogt. At famed Waterloo, old Wellington would look blue if Paddy was not there too, said the Shan Van Vogt. You know, the Irish won the Battle of Waterloo. You know, there would have been no victory. but And there were Irish on the other side, Napoleon's forces. This the you know the there were people who left Ireland after the ninety eight Rising uh, and went to went to Europe and sided with Napoleon. There was you know there were you know there was so so this is part of our story. If we we're to understand who we are as Irish, we shouldn't just wind the calendar back to the Proclamation in nineteen sixteen and take Pierce's Declaration as as the the defining. A uh, document that you know that tells us who we are and what our purpose in life is. Ireland was part of uh, the empire. Ireland now, obviously, Ireland was a colony in a to an extent, but Ireland was not a colony the way India was a colony. Not in the nineteenth century, right? And uh, I mean, uh, there was there was uh, the outrage over the uh, or the discussion over the Connacht Rangers. Uh, who who, partici- who were executed, Jim Daly, the Connaught Ranger, who was executed in, in, what, 1919, 1920, you know, uh, supposedly or for for being part of a, an uprising against the British in India, because he had heard about how the Black and Tans were behaving back home, you know? Um, and you look, at, and, uh, you know, uh, President Higgins came into this debate, and he says, we have to remember that people like Daly, but it, yeah. we're not... Um, they were not building empire builders. They were not, uh, you know, part of the British empire. They were ordinary human beings trying to make a living in straitened circumstances. So you can't blame them for joining the British army. Well, I have a problem with that. You know, there was, a lot of them were very keen to join the British army, going back into uh, the earlier stages of the 19th century. And even the, uh, uh, the East, East India Company, I mean, the Irish were involved, Irish soldiers were involved in putting down what we call the Indian Mutiny in 1857. And people say, ah, yeah, but, you know, colonisers always recruit local people into their army. Well, they recruited loads of Indians into the army in India, but they didn't send them to Ireland, you know. But they recruited Irish people into the army and they sent them to India. We were part of the suppression of the Indian Mutiny, as we were part of the American Civil War on both sides. Irish people fought and died to preserve slavery as Irish people die, fought and died to end slavery and o'connell said to the ones who fought to preserve slavery you didn't learn that from your irish mothers you know because you know yeah. you know because uh, you know you were betraying you were disgracing your country abroad but i mean there there are there are un, there are chapters of irish history which are not given proper consideration the chapter that follows the 98 rising of of 1798 is the Napoleonic Wars in Waterloo. The chapter that follows the famine is the Civil War in 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 America, right? And and uh, you know, and it's it wasn't just that the Irish went off to America and were forgotten. it. they were sending money back home. They were sending news back home. They were sending news of the deaths of brothers and cousins back home. You know the impact of the American Civil War in the ordinary homesteads and farmers' cots of of. Uh, of uh, Connemara and Cork, you know, was 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 real and was part of our story and is somehow forgotten and written out of our story. So so that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, who are we as the Irish? How do we define ourselves? We can let Patrick Pierce's document of 1916 define us as people on a historic trajectory towards the creation of a Gaelic state, you know, or we can look at the actual experience of our ancestors and our forebears uh, not just on the island of Ireland, but in uh, but in France, in England, uh, uh, on the Crimea, you know, and uh, and in the battlefields of uh, of Flanders and Waterloo.
0: Yeah, and you make mention in the book Maliki about the, the the proclamation. I think it's particularly in reference to the section where they said the Irish people have risen up mm-hmm. over the centuries. You make the point: well, no, they haven't. There was very <laughs> small bands of yeah. individuals who did so. And yeah. That point is well made. Another element that struck me about it and. Just talk, because such status is given to the proclamation. That line, first of all, it begins to talk about the whole nation, cherishing all the children of the nation equally, as, as we know it's completely misunderstood. They're referencing there, I think, to Catholic and Protestant rather than children as in little people. But this then that follows on, and oblivious to the differences carefully fostered by an alien government, which have divided a minority from the majority in the past. Like, to me, what's being said there is the British fostered the differences between yeah. Catholic and Protestant yeah. in the past. And if they hadn't been there, sure so we'd all be fine. Aye. Aye. And that seems to completely avoid what was the reality then and to a large extent now of the differences that are here on the island. Yeah,
1: and that is the ideological principle that blinds nationalists and Republicans to the reality of of, of a Protestant British culture. And look at the way people are responding to the death of Queen Elizabeth, you know. I mean, I have Protestant friends who, who, who wept at the news that, that uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth had died, right? And they're seeing sensible people, you know, but what they're revealing is an indication of how deep uh, their feeling of attachment to monarchy is. Now, I'm an Irish Catholic, not a Catholic anymore, but grew up in that. I mean, I, when we were children, we used to go to the cinema. We used to, we sometimes used to miss the, miss the end of the film to get out in time before the national anthem started before the queen come on you know i mean we were you know we were we you know when the queen came on television you were sitting around the, fa- the family watching tv you'd say act look at that old nonsense you know you'd turn that off you know the queen's speech at christmas day you know is there nothing good on the telly you know a million people here and more were acculturated in reverence for that monarchy and a million and the other people were acculturated in uh, revulsion for it, or aversion to it, or disdain for it, and that's a simple fact of life. You know, um, I remember as a, at primary school, you know, wearing a scarf that was red, white, and blue, and other kids pointing at me and saying, "Ah, red, white, and blue, you dirty kangaroo!" You know, you know, I don't, you know, that's what they said. That's what children used to shout at each other, and so we were, we grew up in very, very different cultural climates. And the religious differences are very, very strong differences. I mean, I was really surprised when I first heard um, Ian Paisley uh, say, salvation is not by good works. And I said, what? What? You mean you don't get into heaven by, you know, it doesn't help you get into heaven if you give a pound to a beggar. So that's what I was taught all my life. You know, you give money to the black babies and the white babies, and that would help you get into heaven. And here's this other command saying, Salvation is not by good works. He might as well have been, he might as well have been expounding Islam. He might as well have been expounding, uh, you know, uh, Brahmanism. You know, as to come out with such a theologically uh, alien idea to a Catholic. And but that so, and that does tell you the huge gap, the huge gulf. You know, I as a reporter, for instance, I was involved in the nineties in reporting the picket at Harryville Church. I don't know if you remember that. It was was a a Catholic Um, church in Ballymena, which was being harassed and picketed by by supporters of the Orange Order. And that picket ended when a lot of Protestant people from around Northern Ireland came to join the congregation and defend the church. But many of them stood outside and would not go in. They wanted to defend the right of their Catholic neighbours to practise worship but they still believed that that worship was fundamentally satanic and they would not go into the church and join it, you know. Now, you tell me that that isn't a huge division, even ordinary decent people, you know, that thought you should be left alone to your quasi-satanic worship, you know, and not be harassed in it, you know, but they still don't believe it and will never believe it.
0: It is, definitely. um, Beyond all that, though, Malachi, and I think you, you, you largely come to the conclusion yourself that there is going to be a border, poll, probably in the next 10 years. Yeah. And it would seem that the deciding factor in the north, there's going to be, if there is, there's obviously one in the south. I don't think it's yet set in stone whether it would be simultaneously in the south or whether the one in the north would take place first. But one way or the other, the, the crucial one, I'd suggest, and not necessarily foregone conclusion in the south, but the crucial one would be in the north. And to a large extent, I think that'll be decided by the middle ground.
1: That's it. That's it. That's the anomaly, isn't it? that after, after a century or more of really uh, assertive, violent demands for a for united Ireland, you know, it's not, it will not be, and, and defence of the union by, by these great stalwarts like Ian Paisley and whatever, they're, they aren't the ones who make the decision, you know. I mean, Sinn Féin, the Republican movement, combined, for instance, with political nationalists in the north, don't have the numbers to, to deliver 50% in a, major, in a border poll. They just don't have those numbers,
0: you know. can, can that change, or would you say that'll be the way for
1: the next? I 10 think years, that'll be the way. I don't know. Obviously, everything can change. I mean, we live in a world very different from what we lived in even five years ago. But but essentially, you know, Sinn Fein, you know, seems to have got has got up is approaching a third of the of the seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly, right? Uh, and then the SDLP with a few more onto that, you know, just around a third. The DUP are, and, and unionism broadly is in a similar position, you know. So it'll be, the, it'll be the middle grounder. It'll be the floating voter. It'll be people like me, you know, who have given up on the, the acculturation and the indoctrination and the, and the passionate sense that, that this is the right way for things to go, you know, uh, who, who will make the pragmatic decision. It is they who will will tilt the vote one way or the other, you know. Now, there's things you can envisage coming out of that. You could envisage, for instance, that uh, the vote would be carried in the north but not in the south. And what would that mean? How traumatic would that be for nationalists? Uh, If it's not carried in the north, it can be repeated seven years later and seven years after that. But Neil Richmond put a thought to me. He's a Fine Gael TD uh, down there. And he put about, thought to me, because it depends on the middle ground and because there will be such a, a build-up of tension leading up to it, if it's not carried at the first vote in the North, the middle grounders might say, look, this isn't worth it, you know. So there's a lot of people thinking, if we don't get it the first time, we'll get it seven years later. But actually, Neil's insight is better than that, I think. He's saying, you know, if we don't get it the first time, we may never get it because the middle grounders, the people who don't want disruption within society... They might just say, look, this isn't worth it. Let's leave it alone. Let's do it. And you might actually get a vote dropping in the seventh one.
0: And I suppose what arises there, um, Malky, is how do you prepare for a border poll if, as you say, at least a third of those who will be polled, i.e. the unionist community, don't want to participate in any preparation simply because they don't want the idea of it happening at all. I mean, is it possible to still... Advance the project of a border poll and preparing for it, without their participation.
1: Well, one possibility that they sh- they have to face up to is that the vote has to be called when the Secretary of State decides that there's a possibility of it being carried. It will be carried on a fifty percent plus one one vote, fifty percent of the of those who turn out to vote, plus one. Right, which you know. It uh, wouldn't even be fifty percent of the population of, of Northern Ireland. So, and and the de- the demographic uh, shift is towards a Catholic majority. The state of politics in Britain counts for something in this. You know, you could reach a stage in ten years' time where you've had economic collapse in in Britain, uh, where the uh, the demographic build up because of the majority of young people being Catholic. Is ready for a United Ireland, not just on the ideological notions, not just on the uh, the sense of completing the destiny, you know, the the project of Patrick Pierce and the others, but because you'd be better off, because England's gone down the tubes, Scotland's gone independent. If we don't, if we stay in the UK, it's going to be a UK of England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, uh, with perpetual Tory majority in England, you know, and look at the quality of government that you're getting from them, you know. Um, You know, it could be that you would reach a point when the majority of Catholics uh, would say, look, let's let's get it over with. Let's do it, you know. And I might be one of them who would say that in certain circumstances, you know. I would not want the Protestant enclave. I would not want the alienation of my Protestant neighbours, you know. I would not want, uh, you know, perpetual tensions, you know. But I would still in all might decide at some point, that the future is better for me within a united Ireland in a united Europe rather than in a retracting England.
0: And are you confident that that could come about irrespective of what happens in the UK, that that the proper preparation can at least be attempted in the best possible way from those who, who want to advance that project?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I can understand the argument of unionists like Doug Beattie, the leader of the Unionist Party, saying why would i help you to solve your problem you know why would you know i can understand that i mean he's right but you know the the, the, the you have to do then do something to support the union you know it's not enough for unionism to say oh um, oh they've let the homosexuals get married oh they're letting the women have abortions oh my god you know it's not enough unionism almost has to cease to be a, a cultural religious movement and expand itself. Unionism has to win me as well. You know, uh, Sinn Féin, I doubt, will win me over, but the cause of United Ireland might win me over. You know, well then, unionism has to make its play for the middle ground too. You know, unionism has to say, you know, uh, you know, uh, we have got an offer for you. You know, you can't go on saying the, the, the union, that the union, uh, well, they've given up on saying that the union is Protestant. Okay. Although, King Charles himself said it yesterday, you know, (laughs) so but still in all, you know, uh, unionism has to make its offer and it has to be a better offer than just, um, uh, uh, you know, living within uh, unstable devolution with with government by old Etonian prats, you know, it has to be better than that, you know.
0: Yeah, uh, look, it's going to be historic, one way or the other it would seem, I- I- in the coming years. And um, I have to say, um, Malachi O'Doherty's book, Can Ireland Be One?, uh, is a definitely a major contribution to any kind of debate. And I think it really gives the kind of perspective that we haven't seen yet. And that is vital that if we're going to be more than just a scenario whereby 50% plus one and then we throw on and see what happens after that. If it's going to be more than that, I think it's something that anybody involved or interested in it should definitely take notice of. Can Ireland be one written by Malachy O'Darty and published by Merian Press. Malachy, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you, Mike. A pleasure. Uh, I'd also like to thank, as always, our engineer, JJ Vernon, and thank you folks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.